Amen. Let's turn to the word of God here tonight. Second Corinthians chapter five. I want you to turn there. And as you turn there, I want to make an apology. I never apologize for preaching. I never apologize for length. I never apologize for titles or substance or dealing with your heart. But I'm going to apologize here for the title. And I'm apologizing for this reason. I'll give a reason. Because I'm going to use a theological title, which I never do. I'm going to present this as theology. And you know I don't use theological words. Or if I ever touch on them, I explain them. But I am using a theological statement for a title. And do you know why I'm going to do that? Because we're starting a new series. We're going to cover a number of messages. Next week, I'm going to show you who the enemies of this truth is. I'm going to lay them before you, present them, and then we'll shoot them, not literally. But we're going to deal with it with the word of God. But tonight, I'm going to present the truth that the enemies of the gospel hate. And do you know what? This title... This title, this theological statement, they hate it. That's why I'm going to use it tonight. And I'm going to put it on the message. And this is my title. I'm going to explain it to you, so don't worry. Penal substitution. Not just substitution, but penal substitution. I'm using that. And some of you will go, what's penal? I don't understand that. You know why I'm going to use it? Because in this hour... There are very influential pastors who hate this title and preach against it. There are so-called prophets who deny it and say it's not biblical. There are leaders and evangelists affecting nations and affecting churches. And they detest the title of this message. And so I'm going to title my message, Penal Substitution. I think that's a good reason to use it. So I apologize to you in this church because I don't use theological statements and titles. But I hope you don't mind just this once if I title it rather than just substitution. I want to add the word penal, penal substitution, because it will rile our enemies. It draws a line in the sand say, we believe this. We love this. We believe it's biblical. We stand on this. This is our gospel. This is our message. And you know what? When men hate truths that are all through scripture, that are innately within the center and the heart of the gospel, I get very worried about them. Because my Bible says those who believe in Christ have received a love for truth. And if you don't love the truth of God, and this is central to truth, it's foundational to all of truth in the Bible. If a man doesn't love this truth, I get very worried about his soul. Either there's something wrong with his heart or there's something wrong with his mind. And that's possible. They could be intellectually confused, but maybe scrape in with their heart. But I want to tell you, I believe this. I thrive on this. I love this. I'm enthralled with this. So before we deal with the enemies next week, I don't want to get sidetracked with that. I've just told you where I'm going. Now I want to present the truth that enthralls me warms my heart, sets me on fire, keeps me right with God, encourages me on this journey. 
and I pray it will you as well. I've preached this before. It's impossible to preach the gospel without presenting this. I've never shared the gospel without, in some form, making this real. I never use the word penal substitution, but I express what the Bible says. So let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be for sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Will you please pray with me tonight? Father, we pray that you'd make this truth very precious to us. Open it, O oh God, not just tonight, but in the weeks to come. Lord God, write it upon our hearts, write it upon our minds. Guard it, Lord God, in this church. Nor God, for any man to attack this truth, we innately rise up to speak boldly and with great authority. Nor God, we rejoice in truth. We're glad for truth. This is my salvation. This is my redemption. This is the atonement work of Calvary. This is the work that Christ finished upon the cross. This is the work that God the Father sent him to do on our behalf. And oh God, we embrace it. We love it. We understand it. We read it. We see it. Nor God, we accept it as the biblical teaching that you've given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And oh God, we are aflame. We do get angry when men stand in pulpits and deny the central truths of God. Nor God, we rightly have a righteous indignation. We righteously burn, oh God, with, with, with jealousy for the truth of God. And Father, I do pray, nor God, make us a church that stands and contends for the truth of God in this hour. In Jesus' name, please help us, O oh God, and encourage us tonight. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. 
We're going to concentrate here on verse 21. Some people in this hour mock textual preachers. But I want to tell you, when I preach from one verse of Scripture, my entire preaching is on the basis of all of Scripture in context. But I have a biblical right to preach from one verse and to emphasize one verse. It's not out of context. It's in context of the entirety of Scripture and how I have studied it my entire life. Our scripture is verse 21. Read it again. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Notice three people are involved. Him is God the Father. Made him Christ for us. There are three people involved in this verse. And I hope you, it's certainly God the Father and God the Son, all involved in this thing called penal substitution, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the reason, notice the word there, for he hath made him, Christ, for you, for, notice the word for, the first word of verse 21, for he hath made him. Do you know why it says for there? Because it is pointing back. This is the reason, the purpose for the previous verses. What is stated in verse 21, what we have just read here, what we're preaching on. When he states it and says for, he is saying this is the reason, the purpose for the teaching in the previous verses. Verse 20, verse 19, verse 18 and the other verses all the way back to 17 and the verse 14. Look what it says in these previous verses in verse 17. If any man be in Christ, that is connected to verse 21. When you see that God the Father made Christ sin for you, it's for this basis. Look at it, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, He is a new creature. Do not separate that to Christ being made sin on the cross. If you nullify and change the teaching that God the Father made Christ sin for you, you will destroy the teaching of being in Christ. You will utterly destroy it. Or becoming a new creature, being born again, being saved. You will destroy that teaching if you play around with the cross. If you change the teaching of what God the Father done with the Son and why he done that. If you start changing that, reinterpret it. Deny what the Bible says about what God the Father done on the cross through Jesus Christ. We will see that men are no longer birthed of God. They are no longer new creatures. They are no longer in Christ. If you want a fast way to destroy being anything in Christ, receiving anything in Christ, being changed in Christ, just play games with the cross. As soon as you change the message of the cross, you destroy your experience in Christ. It actually changes. You cannot change the cross, the message of the cross. You cannot reinterpret what happened on the cross without it destroying the Christian experience of a changed life. 
Look at verse 14. It says that love constraineth us. That love is connected to the cross. It's not just saying love from God's heart. There is no love apart from the cross. And so in verse 14, it says love constrains us, you and I, the Christian. What does it mean constrain? It means to drive us, control our actions. That's what the word constrain means. What are you controlled by? The love of God. The love of God pushes you, molds you, makes you, drives you, leads you, controls you. That's what the love of God does. But in verse 14, it doesn't only say love constraineth us. It goes on to explain what kind of love. If one died for all, then we're all dead. It's talking about Calvary love, not just love as an emotion from God's heart. The love that constrains you, that impacts your life. It's not just God's love. It's God's love manifest at the cross when Christ died. There's something about that love. Love shed forth at the cross. It impacts your life. Verse 15, he died for all. Why? That we shall not live unto ourselves. A selfish Christian is not a Christian. I know we all fight against selfishness. We all have to deal with that in our own life. But someone who is dominated and is innately selfish, self-centered, never considers others. I have to say there's something wrong with their experience of the cross. How can you encounter the love of God and the Christ of Calvary, the selfless one, the one who was not selfish? How can you meet the man of Calvary who died on the cross for you, the perfect son of God, the sinless son of God, who did not withhold himself and yet we're selfish? How could that possibly be? Verse 16, it says, no, no man after the flesh. It's not just saying about Christ. It's saying any man, all of our relationship. So look what's happening here. It's impacting your entire life. You don't even deal with anybody else. When you experience the cross, the new birth, real salvation, it affects every single relationship. You're no longer self-centered. You're Christ-centered. And you know what? You no longer know other men and women after the flesh, after the natural body. Now you know them according to this experience in Christ. It changes your relationship. Guys, with your mommies, it affects that relationship. That's maybe one of the most major radical impacts of the cross of Christ. It affects your relationship with your children and your parents and your siblings and all those around you. And so we have it here, a vital truth. But look, just before verse 21, we have an entire message of reconciliation. Verse 18 through to verse 20. It's all about reconciliation. The word reconciliation, before getting to the cross, where our sins by God the Father are imputed to Christ. What does he talk about? Reconciliation. The word reconciliation used five times. Listen to what it means. It means to be restored. This is the Greek meaning. To be restored. To be exchanged. It means to change mutually. Two people in agreement 
making a changeover. It means in agreement together, the entire relationship is changed. It means two agreeing together to make a difference in the relationship. This is reconciliation. And so five times he talks about this whole reconciliation of a change in relationship. And you know what he relates it to? God the Father imputing sin to God the Son, your sin being laid upon him. That's the basis of all of this is a changed, radical relationship. What does he say? And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus. He is reconciled. He has changed positions. Do you see what I'm saying here? Reconciled just doesn't mean unified. It means something has changed radically in the relationship and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're born again, you now have a ministry to bring others into a changed relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. On what basis? On the basis of what God the Father done in Christ for sinners. That's the basis of your ministry. All of us have this ministry, every Christian. We have a ministry of reconciling men back to Christ. In other words, there's a changing in the relationship because sinners aren't reconciled. And listen, how does that happen? Not imputing their trespasses onto them. How do you reconcile men back to God? How are you going to draw a sinner out of the world into a right relationship with God? It's connected to this God not imputing their sin onto them. He calls it their their trespasses, their sins. It is their sin. And yet God does something in this reconciliation where their sin that they have committed against God, disobedience, breaking God's commandments, he doesn't impute it onto them. Listen to what the word impute means. Keeping a record, reckoning to your account what you have actually done. Your sins not being taken account of or you not being held responsible for them and paying the price for them. That's what it says here. He will not impute your sins. There's a lot of teachers in the church, a lot of preachers. They say God so loves you, he just forgives you. Unconnected to the cross. They don't believe that God the Father Punish Christ in your place. They don't believe that. They believe it's heresy. They believe it's unbiblical. And yet they actually teach that God is innately love. So he just forgives you. As I'm driving in in the car tonight and this thought comes to me. It's like a tax man. I've got to see a tax man every year with all my accounts. Imagine going to your tax man and you've knocked up all of these debts through the year. I mean big bills, big debts. And the tax man, he's such a loving man, such a kind man, such a nice man. He's your friend and you sit down with him. And he says, Keith, don't worry about it. You know what? I've done all of your accounts up. And all I've done was ignore all the debts. I so love you. I'm your tax man. 
I decided not to write them down, not to take account of them, and just to pretend they don't exist because I love you. I care about you. I hate to think of you carrying these burdens. So I, your tax man, I'm not going to put them on the form. I'll just blank them out. Do you know what I'd be saying to them? Well, that's fine for you to do that. You don't have it written down in my accounts. But those debt collectors are going to come knocking at my door. Just because it's not written down doesn't mean it's ignored. Listen to me very carefully. Where have those debts gone? It's not enough to say, oh, I'm not going to impute or write down sin to your account. Where did the sin go? Where did the debt go? It's okay for you to say, God just so loved you, he's going to ignore your sin. But there's a big problem with that. Where did the sin go? Where is it? Oh, God just forgave you. He cannot do that. That's unrighteous. You know, the tax man, he's a criminal. If he just forgives your sin, he's a criminal. If he just says, I'm not going to put the debts down. I'm not going to write it all out. Just you go home and sleep well tonight. I, the tax collector, have wiped it all out. Where did the debts go? Who paid it? Because if I didn't pay it, someone's going to pay it. And a whole bunch of debt collectors are going to come knocking saying, where's our debts? Where's our debt? Oh, the tax collector just forgave me. He wiped it out. Look at the bank account. Look at, look at all the tax files. Look, it says it here. I, there's nothing in my account. The debt collector's going to go, there's a debt. Someone has to pay it. And you're trying to pretend it's not to your account. I hope you understand what I'm saying here tonight. And so it says that, In this work of God, God does not impute sin to us. My message is penal substitution. The word penal is an old theological term. It means to be punished. Penal. It comes from the word penalty. Penalty. In other words, there's a substitution that's the result of a penalty, a punishment. Penal substitution means that Christ was punished in your place for your sins. There was a penalty. There was a consequence to your sin. You weren't just forgiven. Yes. Do you hear me tonight? You, God didn't just so love you that he just said, I'm going to forgive you. I'm God. I can forgive you. Yes, but you wouldn't be righteous. You wouldn't be holy. You wouldn't be good. If you just forgave me because you love me. That is not holiness. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He cannot ignore sin. He cannot excuse it. He can't just wipe it out. Something. Where did your sin go? We've got to get to the root of this. And so penal substitution. What does the word substitution mean? You know about, some of you do, football games and all the rest. There's a substitute. If you're the best player in the game and you hurt your leg and get injured, there's always a substitute there. What is a substitute? He steps in to take your place in the game. You're out of it. The person who is there has been removed, and here comes another person to stand in that position, to play in that position, to take the place of that. That's what a substitute is. 
One person is removed, the other person comes right in. That is a substitute. The word substitute is putting one person or thing in the place of another. It's the punishment and penalty which we deserved coming upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the consequence of our sin were diverted from us who deserved it. You did deserve punishment, you know. To him who did not deserve it. It's the guilt, the punishment has been transferred from the guilty one and placed upon the innocent one. It's a legal statement, a legal action. It's two people changing places, changing their situation legally. It's the transference of my guilt onto him and his righteousness onto me. It is the possession of both being changed in this one action in relation to sin, the law, and the curse, as well as God the Father. There's a change. It says in Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment. And it's for many. Notice the term again. It says to give his life a ransom for many. The word for there is the word anti in the Greek. Anti-Christ doesn't mean against Christ. It means someone who comes and takes the place of Christ, a deceiver. That's what an anti-Christ is. They come in and take the position. So the Greek word anti means in place of. You move in and take the place of. What did we just read here in this verse? Christ came to give his life a ransom for many, anti-many, not against many, but for many, in the place of many. He came to pay a ransom, a price, and he took the position of many others. This is all through the Bible. It's again in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins. There are teachers come in the church and they say, Christ just died on the cross because he loved you. But nothing was accomplished there. He didn't suffer for your sin. He didn't take your place. Your sin wasn't imputed to him. He didn't suffer the wrath of God. No, 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 none of that's true. God just loves you. God just forgave you. God just saved you. I want to tell you, when you separate the real work of the cross, you destroy the gospel message. You utterly tear it apart. Now let me bring you to this one verse, verse 21. I want to expound it. I want you to understand it. I want you to believe it. There's enough power in this one verse to get you saved tonight. If you're not born again, you can put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed tonight. There are false teachers will destroy the truth of the Bible. Oh, how dangerous false teaching is. Liars, questions that raise up lies against the truth of God. It's soul destroying. It says in verse 21, for he, that is God, has made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us. 
God the Father has made Christ the Son to be sin for us on our behalf to benefit us. God made Christ sin for you, for your benefit, not for himself. We know it's ultimately for his glory, for his good pleasure, for his delight. But why does the Bible say he did it for you? God the Father made Christ sin for you. He did it for you. You couldn't be saved without that. If God the Father did not make Jesus Christ sin, you could not be forgiven. You could not be loved. You could not be in Christ. You could not be a good creature, a a new creature. And so we see here, he did it for you, for you the sinner, for you the guilty one, for you that needs a substitute. God the Father done something to the Son. He made his Son sin. Can you imagine that? God the Father so loving you, he can't just forgive you. He's actually got to make his own Son sin in order to forgive you. He can't cancel your sin. He won't remove your sin. He won't wipe it all out. You know what he's got to do? He's got to make his own son sin in order to forgive you. You want to know if God loves you? Of course he loves you. Look at Calvary. Look at his son. Do you see him making the son sin for you? That's how much he loves you. That's what he thinks of you, that he would allow the son to become sin in your place. That's how much he loves you. He Oh, it was just the Roman soldiers. It was just the Jews. It was just Pilate that done this, that crucified him. It was the high priest. It was the Roman soldiers. It was imperialism. It was the worldwide sinners of that generation. No, it wasn't. What does it say? He has made him to be sin on the cross at Calvary. Oh, yes, the soldiers were crucifying him. But what was God the Father doing at the exact time where they were betraying him, selling him, condemning him, judging him, nailing him, whipping him, all of those things piercing his side? God the Father was making him sin. That does not mean making him sinful or making him a sinner. He did not become a sinner. He was righteous. He was God on the cross. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't set aside his divinity. He didn't do that. He was God on the cross. Remember what the Bible says? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Where? On the cross. God was in Christ on the cross. God was there in Christ reconciled as he suffered, as he died. It wasn't just a man there. He was God manifest in the flesh. He never gave up his deity. He was absolutely God, but he was also absolutely man. He died as a man in the flesh, in the body, not in soul, not in spirit. His deity didn't die. That would be impossible. His body died. His physical flesh died. At that time on the cross. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53 and 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Why was Christ wounded on the cross? Was it a mistake? Was it a tragic accident? Was it the result of man's sin? Hating him, crucifying him, lying against him? 
No, the Bible actually says he was wounded for our transgressions, my sins. That's why he was wounded on the cross. Not because a Roman soldier hated him or someone lied about him. Oh no, it was for my sin here tonight. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Why did he get wounded on the cross? Why was his body pummeled? Why was it bruised? Why was it hurting, bleeding, suffering because of your iniquities? Your real sins that you've committed in your life, in thought and word, in action and deed, against others, against yourself, against God. Because of those sins, he was bruised on the cross. You want to know why he died on the cross? Because of your sin. Your sin nailed him there. Your sin held him there. Your sin poured out the wrath of God upon his head. It was your sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned Every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What happened on the cross? He took all of our sin. Not one man's sin. Not thousands. Not a million. He took our sins. All of our sins. All of our transgressions. All of our wickedness. Every evil thought. Every wrong word. He took all of that. And what did he do? It was laid upon Christ in one moment, in one place, at one time, for one purpose. It says, with his stripes we are healed. Every time he was striped, not just singular, plural. With his stripes we are healed. It's talking about spiritual healing, not just physical healing. Every time he was striped, we were healed. His pain and suffering physically on the cross brought healing to us spiritually. You couldn't be healed. You couldn't be forgiven. If you deny what he done on the cross for you, you could not receive anything. You can't be healed. Your healing, your salvation, your forgiveness depends on his wounds on the cross, on his suffering, his pain, his agony, all of that. Your salvation depends upon it. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, For Christ also hath once suffered, once suffered, never to suffer again, for sins. For sins. Why did he suffer? For sins. Since this is why I get angry at false teachers. I get angry at men who are filling pulpits who should know better, who deny penal substitution. I get angry because this is an eight to the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. It is central to the gospel. It would take away your hope. It would take away confidence. If this is not true, we might as well all throw our Bibles in the bin. I'm telling you, we, we might as well go out and sin grievously because there is no gospel. There's no hope. There's no redemption. But I want to tell you, it is true that by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You can't be brought to God unless he suffered. If he didn't suffer for your sins, when he hung on the cross, if he wasn't in agony because of 
your personal, your sin. If that didn't happen, you can't be brought to God. He can only bring you to God when he suffered. When we remove the cross from the preaching of the gospel, we have no gospel. When we deny substitution, we destroy the new birth. It's heresy. It's dangerous to deny this truth that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. Notice this is not the work of man. It wasn't Roman soldiers or Jewish Pharisees that done this. It is the work of God. He laid on him your iniquities. Only God can do that. Man can't do that. Religious systems can't do that. The church can't do that. Only a sovereign, supernatural deity can actually take your sins when you haven't even been conceived yet. You haven't even sinned yet. And yet he takes your sin, your iniquity, and he actually lays the consequence of your sin on his son 2,000 years ago. Only God can do that. Look what else it says in verse 21. To be sin for us. He has made him to be sin for us. He made Christ to be sin for us. He didn't make him an actual sinner. He didn't say he actually made him literally sin, your sin, or made him sin for you. He didn't suddenly change his DNA and his nature and become sin. It's not saying that. That would be ridiculous. You know what it's saying? In the Hebrew, the Old Testament, you, the same word is used for sin a sin offering or an offering for sin. The exact same word. And that gets carried through into Hebrews in the New Testament. You can't distinguish between sin and an offering for sin. When it says he became sin for us, it's not saying literally he became sin. It is actually saying he become an offering for sin or a sin offering. We're going to deal with this in the weeks ahead because it's all through the Old Testament. Anyone who denies a offering for sin or a sin bearer that Christ bore our sins doesn't know the Old Testament, doesn't know Isaiah, doesn't know Leviticus, doesn't know Genesis. Because it's all through the Old Testament. They don't know ritual. They don't know Israel. They don't know their Bibles. Anyone who denies penal substitution, I tremble for them. Because either they're in a bad way mentally or they're in a bad way spiritually. It's one of the other. And God help us. We need to stand on the truth of God. To be sin for us. Who is the us? It's you and I. The unrighteous one. The powerless one. The helpless one. The hopeless one. He was made sin for you and I. You had no power. You had no righteousness. You had nothing to offer unto God. But Christ was made sin, an offering for sin. Not just sin. He was made an offering, a sacrifice for sin, that sin could be laid on him. He became the offering for your sin. When it says he becomes sin, it's your sin he's become an offering for. He wasn't sinful. He was the perfect lamb of God. We are born sinners. We are worthless. So it's not just sins that he died for, but for 
sinners. And listen, sin was not physically laid on them on the cross. It wasn't all your sins tangibly lifted and laid upon him physically and visibly. That did not happen. So when it says that our sin, that he became a offering for our sin, what does it mean? It actually means the responsibility for your sin, the guilt of your sin, the consequence of your sin, all the results of your sin actually was laid at his door. Now he is going to become the sacrifice for all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your condemnation, everything that you should suffer for all of your sins is now going to be laid upon him on the cross. All the responsibility of what it means to be a sinner, to disobey God, to defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be you having to pay the consequence. Oh no, that was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen, all of this is all through the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 7, you remember Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They disobeyed. They were walking in perfect fellowship. Then they disobeyed God. They sinned. They, uh, 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 Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam willingly, <clears throat> with his eyes open, sinned against God. Listen to what it says when God comes looking for him. Adam, where are you? Where are you? He's hiding in the bushes. Why is he doing that? He is ashamed. Who told you you're naked? I don't know. I just know I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I'm condemned. I'm guilty. I have disobeyed. Who told you all that? Instantly. When he sinned against God, all of this came to him. He knew he was a sinner. He's embarrassed of his own physical body. First time it ever happened. And it, so God comes looking for them. Genesis 3, 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They tried to cover themselves. It was the work of their hands. They're there sewing. Man, Adam, I've never seen you sew so beautifully. It's never been so important. And it was an apron for around his midriff, around his middle parts. And so you have them trying to create a covering of their own work. But listen to verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins? Where did the coats of skins come from? You need to kill an animal. Who done it? It was God. This is the first death mentioned in the Bible. These are the first animals ever killed in the entire creation. Blood has never happened before. No one has ever died before. No one was ever killed before. Who does it? God kills an animal to get a skin in order to cover them. This was God's work. Do you see you've got penal substitution from Genesis chapter 3 and it continues to get deeper, more thorough and deeply explained. But this is the beginning of it, that God himself provided a substitution. That animal is going to die. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Remember what it says in Hebrews? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no release, no forgiveness, no bloodshed. You don't get forgiven. Oh, God's just so loving. He can cancel out my sin. No, he cannot. 
God's so loving, he can just ignore my sin. No, he can't. There's got to be a consequence. Where did your sin go? Who paid the price? And believe me, the price of your sin is suffering, judgment, wrath, being cut off, being cast away. It is death. So who paid the price for your sin? Where did your sin go to? Oh, isn't it good God just forgave me? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He had to find someone to suffer for your sin. Someone had to pay the penalty. Someone was going to pick up the ticket. Someone was going to be condemned in your place. Or what about Exodus chapter 12? Remember, that's when Israel are brought out of Egypt, out of captivity in one night. Remember when they took a lamb for each household and they had to shed the blood and then put the blood on the lentils of the door. Remember that? And when the death angel come over, when he's seen the blood, he says, I won't go in that house. I won't kill the firstborn. It didn't matter if you're an Israelite. Oh, I'm not an Egyptian. I've got the right DNA. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. You better shed that blood. I don't care how righteous you are, what your DNA is. I don't care that you're a Jew. Without the shedding of blood, you will die tonight. I want to assure you, if you don't put that blood on that lintel, you know what? A lamb had to die in their place. This is penal substitution. That lamb's going to die. It's going to suffer. Its life comes to an end. Because of you, in your place, all of this was a picture of Christ. Leviticus chapter 16, we have the scapegoat. Aaron, the high priest, laid his hands on the goat's head. Do you know what he'd done? He said, your sin is being laid on the goat. Then we kill the goat. There's one goat is going to die. The other goat is the scapegoat. It gets carried out into a wilderness, never to be found again. I'm going to go through all these things far more because we need to, because wicked men hate the truth of God. This is everywhere. I grew up with this. I got taught this from my mother, <coughs> from, the, 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 from my childhood, how that all of these Old Testament things are symbolic concerning the transferring of our sin to an innocent animal in preparation for the cross. God spent thousands of years trying to teach us through types and shadows and events and history in the life of Israel so we would be prepared for the cross. He takes our sin, places it upon Christ on the cross in his body. There is punishment for sin. There is wrath. Remember what John the Baptist said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? The modern preacher says, there's no wrathful God. There's no angry God. There's not a God that hates sin. We, we, we shouldn't be sinners scared of an angry God. God's a loving God, not an angry God, not a hateful God, not, not a God that wants to punish us. What Bible do you read? Do you know when you read the Bible, you see there is punishment, there is wrath, there's indignation, there is suffering for sin, there's rejection for those that do not rep repent, there's a affliction from the hand of God as a result of sin. Blood is the symbol of substitution. It says in Isaiah 53 and 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Please the Lord. He was actually pleased to bruise his son for your sin. 
It pleased God. It made him happy, delighted, satisfied that he could bruise his son in order to save you. And he put him to grief. God the Father put his son on the cross to grief for your sin. Because you could never be forgiven or loved. You could never get saved or born again. You could never be changed. You could never be accepted by him. Do you know how he done it? He put his own son to grief. He bruised his son. Oh, I thought it was the Jews. I thought it was the Roman soldiers. No, the Bible constantly says, he, God the Father, bruised him for you. God done that. On the cross, it wasn't just Roman soldiers. God the Father was on the cross bruising his own son. How do these false teachers deny this? They just wipe it out and say it doesn't mean that. And yet it's from Genesis to Revelation, the truth of this. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, a sin offering, he shall see his seed on the cross. Do you realize Christ could see his seed? I'm suffering. I'm dying. I'm having the wrath of God. God, the fa- my father in heaven, who I've been joined with for all eternity in perfect fellowship. Here I am on the cross and I'm experiencing the wrath, the punishment, the judgment. But you know what? I can see my seed. Everyone who's going to be born again. Do you realize Christ on the cross as he suffered could see you? He could see his children, his spiritual children. He could name you by name. He knew everything about you. And as he's suffering for your sin, he can see you afar off even though you weren't yet conceived. What a remarkable thing the gospel is. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, who is Christ, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What does it say? My righteous servant's going to justify them, just as if they never sinned. The one dying on the cross bearing their sin is going to justify them, set them free, forgive them. How is he going to do it? He shall bear their iniquities. On the cross, if Christ bore your iniquities, you go free. If you believe this, if you accept this, if you walk in the light of it, if you embrace it, if it changes your life, for you, for you, the innocent one suffering for the guilty, The guilty one then is free and changed. It says he knew no sin. This one dying on the cross knew no sin. He'd not experienced any of this before. He didn't know what it was to suffer the consequence of sin before. It's not that he was a sinner in nature or action or in word. You know the hyper-faith movement in America, they actually teach that Christ became a sinner on the cross he became a serpent on the cross that his nature changed and he become a vile sinner his nature that's heresy that that is dangerous heresy do you know money isn't the worst part of the prosperity gospel no 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 that isn't their worst heresy it's that they turned the lord jesus christ was my bible says who knew no sin Benny Hinn, Copeland, all the rest say he become a sinner. Joyce Meyer as well. He became a sinner on the cross. That's an abomination. 
you know what my Bible says? He knew no sin. He was my righteous servant dying on the cross for your sin. What heresy has come into the church in our lifetimes? He was the sinless, perfect son of God. What about Galatians chapter 3.13? It says, God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Where? On the cross. You don't need to go through years of inner healing, casting out of demons, breaking of curses. You don't need someone to come and say, renounce. You need to renounce all these curses over your life. Per Rory uh, was a Freemason. Who knows what his father was? Can you imagine if you've got, got to go back to your family? Before I can renounce and break the curses over my life, over my children, over my future, I've got to know all the facts and details. God help you then. God help you that you've got to go back. Do you know there are prostitutes in Christ's DNA line? Do you know if you trace back his family line, there's prostitutes. There's even Ruth the Moabitess. How terrible. She was a Moabitess, an enemy of God. You start to find adultery. You find incest. You find rape. You find every vile sin in that family line. Are you saying that Christ had to renounce all these things and break all the curses? Can you imagine all the curses that would mount up? There's so much foolishness in the church of our day. You know, when I was growing up, going through those ministries, they'd say, no, we're going to break all the curses off your life. Was, was your father a Freemason? Was there any witchcraft in your family line? And they'd start sweeping their hand up and down your back saying, we break this and we break that. Where, where do you get that in the New Testament? We, you need to renounce all these things. Can you show me one verse? Oh, I know about repentance from sin, for your personal sin, for being a sinner. But to renounce and to break all these things, where do you get that? You know, you only get the teaching of the breaking of curses in the book of Genesis. It mentions it briefly, and I'm dealing with it right now. If you want to live under the law, remember that's old covenant, Blessings and curses, you're under law. You're in the old covenant. You're in the wrong covenant. There's no breaking of curses, blessings and curses under this new covenant. Listen, Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Not only was Christ made sin or an offering for sin, for us on the cross he was made a curse for us why to break the curse to break the curse do, do you know what we don't renounce curses we don't break them with the sweeping of a hand or going through a Derek prince course or having or going into your family line to find out what all the sins of your fathers were oh no we don't do that you know what we do we go to calvary we go to the cross we see the christ was made a curse for us. He became a curse. All the breaking of the law, he says, I, I'm gonna, this is for you. This is for you because you're all guilty. You're all guilty. Who hasn't broken the law? Who isn't under the curse of the law? So what's the remedy of that? It is that he became a curse for us on the cross. 
For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Oh yes, we know how to get you into the blessings. We're going to break the curses. No, 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 no. Hold on. It is Christ becoming a curse on the tree, on the cross. He become a curse and you believe the gospel. That's how the curse is broken. That's how you get into the blessings of Abraham or the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Man, I feel like I could preach for three hours here. But again, verse 21, it says, and this is it. Listen to me. Why did God the Father make Christ the Son sin for you, curse for you? Why did he do it? Verse 21, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You can't become righteous if he is not your sin offering, if he's not your substitute, if he did not take your place, you cannot become righteous. The reason why God punished him on the cross, delighted to bruise him, to wound him for your sin, he did that for a reason, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's God's plan. If you don't feel righteous tonight, you need to hear what I'm saying. You need to know this is God's plan and salvation, that you become the righteousness of God in, in, in Christ Jesus. If you don't feel righteous, if you don't believe and know that you're perfectly righteous in Christ, the devil's playing games with you tonight. You, you're, you're being undermined by guilt and condemnation. You're actually living in the light of sin rather than understanding what was done at the cross for you. He says, we, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Might be made. The word made there means to produce, to construct, to fashion. So God is fashioning, raising up, producing a life that actually is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not just that he gives you righteousness. You become the righteousness of God in Christ. If you're in Christ, if he has atoned for your sin, you become righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. He, it, it is a work that God does. The righteousness of God. You're not only made righteous, but you become God's righteousness. That's what the Bible says. What is God's righteousness? What is God's righteousness? It's his righteousness. It's not yours. This isn't you doing everything right, producing a nice Christian life and saying, see God, I'm righteous. Oh no. He says you become the righteousness of God. God has can you imagine what God's righteousness is like? What is God's righteousness? It is Christ's righteousness. It says in Romans chapter 5 verse 19 about Christ's obedience. Do you know that Christ's obedience is God's righteousness? It's talking here about a righteousness that is God's, that is Christ's, but he makes it yours. 
He gives it to you in such a way that this is what you become. It's not mere theory or theology or doctrine. This is a practical reality where you go, this righteousness that is God's becomes so mine, so innately mine, it changes who I am. My identity, my, my, I self-identify now as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Who are you? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Saints of God, we've got fools all over this city, a nation and world of ours, self-identifying us. A dog, I'm a dog. I think I'm a tree. Some guy saying, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. How ridiculous. What I'm telling you is not ridiculous. It's not a thought. It's not imagination. This is the truth of God. You are my righteousness. And you know, we go, I can't believe that. Oh, oh, amen. That's in the Bible. You walk out of here and you go, I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I, I, I feel so short of perfection. Do you know God has made you this in Christ? Are you born again tonight? Are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in him through the blood, through what he done on the cross? Then you are righteous tonight. When he looks upon you, he no longer sees the sins that you have done. He sees the righteousness of his son. You are made righteous in Christ Jesus. This isn't hyper faith or positive confession This isn't denial of sin. You know I preach against sin. We deal with sanctification. It doesn't deny that. But this is the foundation. This is what happens day one when you get born again. You don't realize it. You don't understand it. But instantly you become righteous. There is a gift here that God gives to you. It's all through the book of Romans. It says that, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then listen to what it says. Talking about salvation. For therein, in the gospel. What is in the gospel? What's he going to say? Is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Where do you get this righteousness of God? It's in the gospel. Have you missed this part of the gospel? Where in the gospel, when it comes to you, he reveals his righteousness through the gospel so that it becomes you. It it, it wasn't yours before. It is the righteousness of God. It is, what, what did I say in Romans chapter 5 verse 19? It says, this righteousness is Christ's obedience. For 33 years, he lived on the earth. He never said one wrong word to his brothers or his sisters. He, he done everything his mother told him to do. He grew up under a godly father in that home. He, he walked 33 years. He never sinned in thought or word or deed. Do you want to know what righteousness becomes our gift in salvation? It is a perfect righteousness. It is a robe of righteousness. It is the gift of his righteousness in salvation. He offers to you. Where did your sin go? On the cross. He become guilty because of your sin. Now he's taken his righteousness. Do you see the changeover that comes in this? There's substitution. There is an exchange. There's a changing of positions. There's a changing of a place. 
And so Christ is on the cross. Your sin is being laid on him. The father is actually wounding him because of your sin. But what is he doing with you? You don't deserve this. But because of the cross, because he become your sin bearer. Now he says, I reckon you to be righteous. I call you the righteousness of God. I give you the free gift of perfect, perfect, absolute righteousness. And you know what? I'm imputing it to you. Remember he said, I won't impute your sin. Where did you impute the sin? To the son. So what's he doing with the righteousness? Now what belonged to the son, perfect righteousness He takes that and he imputes it to you. This is revealed in the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 30. And I'm going to close just in a few hours. I mean minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. Ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us righteousness. Are you in Christ? Then God has made Christ unto you righteousness. You get it as a free gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor. Do you know what that richness was? Righteousness. He was rich. Bountifully rich with righteousness. But it says he became poor. Where did he become poor? On the cross. With what? Your sin. So he was very rich. For you, he become very poor on the cross. He was treated as a sinner. Listen, that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you realize through the cross you become very, very rich? The righteousness of God has come to you through the cross. So you're no longer a poor little sinner, bankrupt, no righteousness, no forgiveness, no holiness. Now through the cross, you've been made rich. What is that richness? Oh, God wants me to be financially rich. No, 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 that's not it. This is true riches. It is the righteousness of God. So your poverty was laid on him. His riches were laid upon you, which is perfect righteousness. This righteousness is a gift received by faith. It is imputed to you. His righteousness, it's not, it shouldn't be yours. It's not innately yours, but this is a legal thing. He imputes it. God calculates mathematically. He keeps a book and in that book, He takes Christ's righteousness and he writes it in there in your spiritual bank account. You say, I don't feel righteous. Oh, but there's a perfect righteousness. You've got all of the riches of heaven. Do you know in Christ, all the treasures and riches of God the Father are hidden in Christ. If you get Christ, you get all of these riches. And you know what God does? He imputes it to you. He puts it in your bank account. He was treated. Our sin is imputed to his account. He was treated as if he was in debt. Now we are treated as if we're innocent, perfectly righteous. God's going to love you like you're perfectly righteous. Do you know how you'd feel about yourself if you really believed 
I am actually perfectly righteous in the sight of God. You would find it very easy to go, he loves me. He cares about me. He wants to be with me. He looks upon me with a smile on his face. Why? Because you go, I'm perfectly righteous. But when we sin and disobey and the devil comes in and goes, you've messed up and you're, 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 there's no hope for you and you can't live this life. And, and where are you? And God doesn't love you. And God hates you. And, and it's all over. Have you ever went down that pathway? Now we are treated as innocent. God's perfect righteousness. Perfect obedience in my bank account. It is God's crediting of the riches of Christ into my empty bank account. In order to be full and overflowing. Never to come to an end. It is God's place in Christ's perfect and complete spotless righteousness into our account and lastly it says in verse 21 in him in Christ only in the new birth do you have this only in real salvation and remember Romans chapter 6 Paul gets there says what because we are justified by faith made righteous are we going to continue in sin oh no oh no no way that's not possible sinners will go to hell Someone who turns their back on God and lives their own life, they will go to hell. Don't let this deceive them or lull them into spiritual sleep. If you determinedly go in your way sinning, this truth ought to inspire you, give you a foundation to live righteous and holy. And with this I close one brief story. In the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, the leader of England, Sentenced one of his soldiers to be shot later that day because of his crimes that he committed. It was to take place at the curfew as the sun began to set. When the bell rang every single day at the same time to notify you, curfew, you're not allowed out in the dark. Everyone's got to be inside. And when that bell rang, we're going to shoot that soldier that's guilty. It got closer to the time of the ringing of the bell. And the soldiers were there with their rifles. He stood there, this guilty man. The soldiers lined up with their rifles, ready for the bell to go. The order had been given. When the bell goes, shoot the guilty man. And so they stood. They thought it had got to the moment. They couldn't hear any bell. They looked around, said, what time is it? They said, maybe sh we should send someone to check on the bell. Surely the bell's meant to sh uh, sound and we shoot this sinner. Do you know what had happened? The bell didn't sound that night. That guilty soldier's fiance, who so loved him, was determined that the bell wasn't going to ring for curfew that night. She climbed up into the bell tower, clung to the, what's the thing in the bell? The clanger. Don't cause a clanger. She, she literally clung to it as the hour came for the ringing of the bell. The great clapper in the bell 
was prevented from striking that night. As she held it, her bones were broken. Her hands were bruised. Her body began to bleed. As time after time, she experienced the consequence of holding it. But it never struck. It never struck. Her husband never died. Oliver Cromwell sent a soldier say, bring her to me. She stood before him weeping. She showed him her bleeding hands, her broken body. This is what he said. Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring this night. I don't know whether the story's true. I have some doubts over it. But I'll tell you a story that I've told tonight is true. And there's one at Calvary who became sin, became an offering for sin, for your sin. Your sin wounded him, bruised him, that you could be healed, that you could be forgiven, that you could be atoned for, that you could go free, that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ. You could never have become righteous if he didn't become your substitute on the cross change in places with you that he could stand in your guilt and suffer your punishment while you would stand in the place of his righteousness and walk free into relationship with God the Father. Please stand with me. Let's pray tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you, our God. Father, we're lovers of truth tonight. We love you. We thank you for the truth of God. This thing that we have spoken is no lie it's no deception it's no falsehood it is biblical from genesis to revelation it is the centrality of the gospel it is the reason for why you died it's the reason we can be born again it's the reason we're new creatures it's the reason that we would live holy in this world my god it's the reason why we are perfectly righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he became our substitute. Our sin was laid at his door. He took up the consequence, paid the price that we could be forgiven. My God, I pray right now for a divine revelation that you'd open up our hearts and our minds tonight, that we'd go to our beds tonight rejoicing, praising you. Lord God, that we never could have accomplished this. This is a work of God the Father, and he so loved us that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us, to suffer in our place, to die in our place, nor God to bear the very wrath and judgment of God, of a holy God against sinners. He paid the price that we could go free. And we love you tonight in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord Jesus.